Welcome to the third episode of This Week in Geopolitics. My name is Andrew Eady. I'm here joined by Ross and Clay. Um, and today we're going to be talking about some, some of the big stories this week that have happened in the world of geopolitics and just in the world more generally speaking. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about the Israel-Palestine conflict that's been going on and escalating over the past week. We're going to be talking about uh, talks between Saudi Arabia and both Iran and Turkey and what that means for the region. And we're also going to be talking about the colonial pipeline attacks um, that happened last week and the response um, to those attacks, which might set a dangerous precedent for cyber warfare and cyber terrorism moving forward. Um, just for a bit of context, given this is the third episode and we haven't done sort of a, a true introduction, uh, Clay and I are both coming over from Global Guessing, globalguessing.com. We have a website where we forecast various geopolitical events. Um, we have a couple series where we do uh, forecast on websites like Metaculous.com, Predicted, Good Judgment Open, and we also have a couple podcasts of our own, the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, where we talk about issues related to geopolitics and forecasting, and the right side of maybe, where we talk to forecasters about specific predictions that they've made, how they made them, uh, and if they profited off of them on some of the prediction markets that we explore. So really happy to be here and uh, excited to chat about some geopolitics today. And uh, if you remotely like what we have to say uh, in YouTube, go search Global Guessing uh, and subscribe to our channel so we can hit the 100 subscriber threshold to claim our name. Uh, and you can find us on all social media platforms at Global Guessing, spelt the way it sounds. Um, excited to be here. Um, Ross, how, how, how are you doing today? Yeah, pretty good. Same old day on rainy old England but yeah what about yourselves <laughs> yeah it's been good it's uh it's rainy here as well and we've certainly had a very uh, interesting week in geopolitics to say the least huh yeah I mean yeah I mean I had the I didn't make an episode of this week in geopolitics this week and I had people commenting saying you've gone missing at the worst week so I think we've got <laughs> some stuff to talk about this week definitely definitely so yeah. do we just want to hop right into our first uh our first hot button topic for yeah. uh for this week, which is the uh, growing um, conflict in Gaza between um, Israel uh, and Hamas. Um, Andrew, do you want to give us some, some background context on uh, what's going on? Yeah, so from my understanding, um, you know, it's sort of, I mean, this conflict's been going on for a long time now, so this isn't really anything new, but um, I think in the last week or two weeks, there was, uh, you know, a policy enforced by the IDF on the Gaza Strip where, um, you know, they were basically evicting Palestinians, um, you know, to make room for Israeli settlers. And uh, I think part of the eviction sort of policy was that Palestinians were made to put up, you know, funds to support the transition of these Israeli settlers coming into the new territory. And um, I think that was, you know, like in many civil conflicts, sort of a, a spark that, um, you know, started a lot more violence and you know we've seen Hamas um, targeting Tel Aviv and different parts of Israel now with with uh, airstrikes and we've seen Israel you know leveling uh, buildings in Palestine um, and so things have really just escalated since then. Sorry we've lost um, screen here we'll just keep chatting but we'll, we'll get back up in a sec so. Yeah um, so it seems like the, the conflict is um, continuing to escalate uh, I think Israel said today that um, they don't see um, an end to their current military operation. Um, I was wondering sort of where do we, 
how do we assess the conflict as it is right now right the media is you know playing this as a potential start to uh you know uh, another palestinian um israeli war do you guys see it going that way uh, if you look at sort of fatalities by year um we're nowhere near 2014 which was the sort of last real um, increase in fighting for context that year there was about 2300 fatalities uh, as of right now in the current fighting there's been uh, 122 i believe is what the current number is at um do you guys think we're heading towards a 2014 world um what's your sort of take on the conflict uh where it is right now i mean it's pretty brutal at the moment from what i've seen in the videos and stuff so i've been updating my patreon discord pretty much every day and uh it's been it's been kind of brutal but i'm not sure what you guys think um you know for me i think uh the current regime uh, you know american administration seems to be a bit less inclined to get involved in the middle east as you know we might have been back in 2014 so um I would like to think that, you know, just based on us maybe not getting, um, you know, as involved, having less, you know, troops on the ground in that in that region, perhaps, uh, you know, violence won't escalate to those levels. But at the same time, you know, with Palestine seemingly having fewer sort of allies in the region um, than they did back then, more countries normalizing ties with Israel, I'd, it's, you know, I think there's a good chance that we might see this sort of get protracted a bit. Um, as Palestine sees this as like you know one of their not last stands, but you know they see a window of opportunity closing, you know, to really have enough influence to have a favorable outcome with this uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. What do you guys make of the news that um, Israel um, brought down the building um, that was hold that was um, housing the Al Jazeera and AP news offices? Um, Israel says they did it because they had um, smoking gun intelligence that um, I believe Hamas intelligence was using that building. Um, I've seen reports, I believe, in the Atlantic that um, Hamas has like shot rockets outside of um, the AP's office in the past and the AP won't report it in the news when that happens um, because they've been threatened by uh, Hamas. Do you how do you take the attack, right? Because some people are saying that they brought down this building to sort of block out media coverage for potential war crimes or uh, a ground invasion of Gaza. Uh, whereas the Israeli side is that, you know, there was Hamas intelligence and they're bringing it down because, you know, a response to the ongoing fighting right now. Uh, I mean, I thought it was pretty uh, pretty suspect that they took, took that building out. Uh, I don't know. It was It was very... It seemed to me quite a deliberate attempt to sort of lessen the press coverage. I feel like in the, in the past with these com- with this conflict, um, a lot a lot it seems like the mass of people were more on the side of Israel. But uh, this is just me throwing this out there. But this time it seems like a lot more people on the side of of perhaps um, of Palestine this time. I'm not sure, and and maybe Israel sensing that chose to take out the the sort of the hub of the press there to sort of perhaps re- reduce coverage i mean look at myanmar we had the the government stifling the internet and um kicking out journalists and stuff uh, and i think nagorno karabakh as well i think there was um, severe limitations on journalists mozambique as well 
no journalists allowed into the Cabo Delgado province, so perhaps it's sort of related to that. Um, that's ju- that's just my opinion on that. So yeah, difficult. Probably... Yeah. No, Andrew, go. I was just gonna say it's probably two birds with one stone. Like I think they're happy to you know hopefully damage operations of Hamas, who like is the real enemy of Israel and Palestine, not the Palestinians themselves. And then also, as you said, you know, limit press coverage and uh, hopefully affect the narrative. I think a lot of the times with stuff like this, with conflicts like this, the narrative becomes so big, um, you know, in terms of international support, the potential for international intervention, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, they're definitely just trying to control the narrative, which I think makes sense in times of war. So by two birds, one stone, you mean like both get rid of the Hamas intelligence part, but also get the media aspect too. It's... Yeah, yeah, it's convenient that they were, you know, sharing sharing office space. A little well, was it, was it convenient or do you think it was, you know, Hamas for, right, how do you keep your intelligence operation going for a long time? Put it where international media is so you can't really target it. Yeah. Right, that I guess true. is probably the, the flip side of it because if you're in Hamas territory, what is the AP going to be like? You can't come into our office buildings. We'll we'll write about it. So then, I mean, it it's it would it would strategically make sense for Hamas to, to put something in that in that sort of area. Um, if I were Hamas, which I'm not. Um, <laughs> um, oh God. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. It, it would make sense for them, but I, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know enough about this conflict to definitively give my opinion or answer but it does seem it to me it does seem like a sort of freedom of the press thing or maybe not freedom of the press but a sort of stifling of the flow of information out of the conflict zone so um although isn't i i here's my real ignorance here but like if if they have like press offices in israel that overlook scott like that i i think all these outlets also have you know, offices in Israel also close to Gaza. Like, I feel like it's not... Probably. I mean, maybe I'm... I, I just don't know, like, the geographic landscape in terms of how things look, so maybe having that field office makes a huge difference in terms of getting information about the conflict, but that also might not be the case. Um, uh, Ross, I, I, I put a link in the Zoom chat, which I think is uh, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it just has data on casualties for this conflict over time, because uh, we had someone in the in the YouTube comment sections, I don't know how to pronounce their name at all. Um, VP who said we almost had no conflicts until Biden came into power. Um, and what that data shows is, I mean, yes, this is an uptick from 2020, but um, it's in par with 2019 and we're so far below uh, 2018 when it comes to casualties in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Let's hope we don't think- lose the, sorry, yeah, there we go. Yeah, so I think, and we're nowhere near 2014. If you look at that chart, I mean, 2014 is a whole um, 2020 X where we're at right now. Um, so I, I mean, Andrew, to your point of narratives, I think a narrative is being built, but is is like the reality going to be the narrative? If that makes sense, like the narrative is seemingly like this is the start of a war potentially between Israel and Palestine, um, but is it is that going to to be the case? Because we're what we're halfway through the year, and we're still a third ish of of the deaths that were in twenty eighteen. Um, I, I don't think it's going. Go, there's necessarily a war between Israel and Palestine. I mean, it won't be much of a war, in my opinion. I think Israel. Uh, looking at the last time this happened, 
was was it 2017 the last time this happened um when um israel sort of moved into the gaza strip and just la- launched up op- an operation like they, they there was there was resistance but it wasn't strong mm-hmm. enough to repel israel um the, the thing for me is is, is is the outside um, actors. I think people were crossing from Jordan. Uh, they they ripped down part of the fence and crossed from Jordan into Israel for the first time since 1967. And then we've had rockets launched from Syria as well into Israel. Um, and then I think South Lebanon as well, there was um, rockets launched as well. Um, I think that's the main dimension here. I'm not sure what you guys think of that. I'll get the other... Um, data up it quickly as well, but yeah, I would agree in the sense that I don't think um, you know the narrative is so much tied to what's happening on the ground necessarily, so much as it is like a reflection of just the changing circumstances since then and what that could mean for this conflict this time around. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that um, you know Palestine, like I said, I think it has a lot fewer. Uh, allies than it did, you know, in 2017 or 2014. Um, I think that it might find itself in a bit more, like back more into a corner than it might have, or that, that like than it may have been, um, you know, in prior years. And so when you're in that situation where you have fewer allies, um, you know, where you've been encroached on, you know, more and more by, you know, Israeli settlers, just what does that do to your options? You know, like, what does that leave you with? You know, when you're a group like Hamas, like, all of a sudden now, is it not about proportionate responses, but is it about just, like, causing as much damage and destruction as possible? And how does that affect the future of the conflict? I don't know. I just think it's... I think that there's some justification to people's concern this time around. You say they're, you know, you say they're running out of friends, and that seemed to have been true, but, uh, and we'll talk about this later, but... You know, Iran and Saudi Arabia have been opening up talks. Uh, Iran and no, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Um, you know, there was this whole like, yes, everyone is opening up to Israel, but now it seems like people are also opening up to Iran, and now you have this conflict going between Israel and Palestine. Like it, it seems like that that sort of trend where it seems like they were running out of friends. You know, there is a, a chance that that could actually reverse now. Um, that's obviously conditional on a lot of things happening, but um, it would seem like for Palestine, in terms of friends in the area, that their prospects are probably looking better now than they were four months ago. I think there's more non-state actors getting involved. Um, Hamas, um, I'm not sure about Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, um, or whether, I don't know, it just it seems like there's more, and then the, the Jordanians crossing the border, and and stuff like that. it seems like there's more of a I don't know maybe a massive support rather than an institutional or state support for Palestine this time perhaps I don't know if you guys agree with that or not but that's my thoughts yeah um I've just I've just seen like I don't know I've been I've been following it quite closely on telegram um for my patreon server where I post all the footage and um, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's just a bias of the sources I'm looking at. But and there's a lot of protest. There's lots of protests going on. I don't know what about in the U.S. But there was there was pretty violent um, protests. I think some places. I think they were they were in Canada. It looked quite violent. There's been um, protests in London as well that look a little bit violent. So I don't know. There's 
it's very this is not my favorite subject to talk about because i don't really know too much about it and uh no yeah obviously you get slated from both sides but yeah i think um it's it's interesting Uh, we've talked about i think even on this podcast like the you know it's been 10 years since the Arab spring and not that you know 10 years means anything necessarily but just you know there's been some time past you know how much has changed similar to the Arab spring you know what happened in Palestine, I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, after those eviction policies came out, I think they were eventually withdrawn, but um, Palestinians were protesting, you know, supposedly peacefully, and then they were met with um, aggression, violence from, from Israeli police forces, um, and that, you know, is part of what led to this escalation of violence in the region, and I can't help but just, uh, yeah, notice those sort of allusions to what's happened in the past and wonder if um, yeah, I guess I'm having a harder time seeing what's going to bring a stop to this violence, you know, than, yeah. and uh, what's going to, you know, make it continue. I also wonder the role of social media in this conflict. I thought I read somewhere that TikTok was having an influence on Palestinians and that, especially on, on the youth, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of led off like a rocket barrage, which is I think what the Israeli side would say would be the trigger of the conflict, right? The Palestinian side would have been the police, uh, the, the the protest response. Um, it seemed, right, like... It, Iraq abroad, is this the one that was targeted at Tel Aviv? Um, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, just the role of TikTok and um, this sort of... If it's, if it's, you know, Hamas doing it, then it's you know that's just social media being used as a radicalization tool it could be an outside influence and then we have some sort of like hybrid warfare going on i don't know if you know the palestinians have a complex social media radicalization arm uh to to do such a thing or if that would have been you know done outside by um people who don't like israel um do you think there's any sort of great power interest here perhaps um obviously the u.s is probably i would i would put them put the u.s more on the side of israel than i would palestine but then the democrats some democrats seem to be more on the side of palestine and i think the u.s right has quite a long tradition of being quite um pro-israeli um i mean i'm british so my 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 thoughts on that probably not as as uh accurate as yours but yeah yeah, it's it's both. I mean, it's it, Israel has generally been bipartisan. No, Joe Biden has historically supported um, Israel. I think Biden, which is smart, does its best to separate the Israel issue from supporting the Netanyahu government, um, which I think is a really big issue with this whole conflict in general. It seems like it's become so polarized that if you say something bad about the Netanyahu government, that's somehow saying something bad about um israel which is just a interesting conception because you know when people said things bad things about trump they you know they weren't saying why are you talking bad about the entire you know u.s um it's become very difficult to talk about the conflict but i think biden is definitely more constrained when uh politically uh than trump would have been um but you know i think biden you know largely supports israel and that's you know reflected by his actions and therefore the response that you know progressives like bernie sanders and aoc have given sort of condemning 
what uh, the lack of response from the Biden administration. Yeah, I think the best we'll see from Biden is passivity and sort of not by any means condemning Israelis, like the Israeli actions, but um, just sort of giving very um, almost like apathetic statements of like, you know, just your textbook, you know, Israel has the right to defend themselves, Israel, um, you know, is a sovereign state and needs to like, you know, defend its sovereignty, that sort of thing. But I don't think that... um, yeah, I don't think you're ever going to see him come out in in support of Palestine or the Palestinian movement, it seems, um, especially when it's so tied to Hamas. But he is probably constraining Israeli yeah. behavior. Like, I think the Israeli response would be a lot more extreme if Trump were to still be in office, just so. because of the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu is fundamentally different between Netanyahu uh, and Biden. I think Netanyahu, even before the... I don't want to put words, so I'm not even... I think Netanyahu publicly favored Trump, or if not, I mean, geopolitically did the equivalent of that. Um, But, yeah, I think that is... So, you know, Biden is not going to, like, stand up and say, completely move from Israel, support Palestine, like you were saying, Andrew, but he probably is constraining Israeli response to a degree. Almost Mm. certainly, if you think Israel's response is uh, over the top, you would obviously not view Biden doing enough to restrain, but there pro- there there is a, pro- a, a restraint being shown because of that. I I would hypothesize. I think I think what you said about Bernie and AOC is quite interesting because I think both Biden's cons- like you say he's constrained by both wings of the Democratic Party very much. If he takes one side, then it splits the party. Um, I feel I think Bernie Sanders is quite pro-Israel. Um, and then you've got AOC who who isn't necessarily no they're both they're both they're both pretty um, they're not like pro they're pro Palestinian they're they're obviously anti Hamas don't yeah. want to you know perpetuate that myth because um, they're just not but they they have a pro Palestinian slant and they sympathize with the Palestinians over the Israelis given the huge power and economic differential um, between the two sides and in the conflict. Um, I just and I, so there's. I, I remember seeing a video of Bernie Sanders getting really angry with someone who was saying something about Israel. Uh, maybe that was, maybe that was just completely out of context when I watched that. But yeah, I mean, like I I don't think Bernie like hates Israel. I think Bernie has negative views of the Netanyahu government. Yeah, um, probably makes and more sense. definitely the same with AOC. But you know, if you ask them about Israel, they're, they they don't they're not like anti-Semitic. They don't dislike Israel. They have issues with human rights with the Netanyahu government uh, and just with the overall treatment of the Palestinians. And what's um, funny is that even, as you said, Bernie Sanders, you know, he he's not anti-Israel. He's anti, you know, Netanyahu regime. Um, even he's been, you know, lambasted by other, you know, prominent Jewish figures in the media, like Alan Dershowitz, who have called him like a self-hating Jew just for, you know, not appreciating what Netanyahu's done to Israel. Um, so it's clearly this. It's clear this is all very complicated domestically, and gets even more complicated when you think about like the geopolitical ramifications of a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, like just imagine how how much of an impact the Israeli-Palestine conflict has had on the Middle East, just in general. Like if this wasn't a thing, you know, I feel like it would free up the opportunity for so many other um, potential allyships, development, etc. But it's going on since 48 it's basically defined literally since they got there yeah 100 percent 
Yeah, um, 100%. I'm curious, like, what you guys think the sort of the biggest uncertainty right now is when it comes to understanding the future of this conflict. Like, what is the thing that we would like to know and to sort of figure out where things are going to go? Um, I, I, the sort of the background framing of this is Andrew and I want to do a forecast on the future of this conflict for uh, tomorrow's volume of Metaculous Monday on Global Guessing, where we um, do forecasts related to, to geopolitics every Monday. Um, and so, like, what is it in this conflict that we would sort of want to understand to see where it is going to go? Is it how many more fatal, like, how many fatalities will there be in the entire month of May? If you were to know what that is going to be, would you be able to know where the conflict is? Is it the chance of a ceasefire or UN uh, great power or great power intervention? Like, what is the question mark above the future of this conflict? the biggest question mark that you think could reasonably be sort of analyzed out? I mean, I don't know if you want to go first, Andrew, but I, I don't know. Um, I just, I see it staying the way it is, I think. Um, I don't see any end in sight, if you ask me. I think potentially Israel just, it may get to the point where there's not really much more. I mean, if you look at the map from 1947 to now, there isn't really... the the land that Palestine has has just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and I don't know what will happen in the future whether and and then obviously with the the um the Golan Heights last was it last year or 2019 uh, the last year 2019. yeah the last year doesn't exist for me so but yeah <laughs> um yeah that that they obviously and then I think Trump recognized the Golan Heights as well I think it's Israel, the Trump Heights I think yeah I think Israel will just potentially have more territory from it I don't know um, but then again this whole thing maybe it will kick back the other way and I, th I thought Israeli some Israeli settlers were, were removed from near Gaza as well recently and that that sort of didn't help things either uh, I don't know if someone wants to fact check me in the comments section there as well but I don't know I don't I just yeah to stop rambling basically I don't think there's an end in sight if you ask me um, unless there's an outside intervention, I think we had Turkey and Erdogan talking about putting troops in in Gaza as well. And then I don't know what the Russian view on the conflict is. I think it's fairly similar to Turkey. I think the 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 Turks were consulting the Russians on it, um, or the other way around. Sorry, I think the they were they were recommending the the creation of a shield force. Uh, I think Turkey wanted Russian troops to be involved in that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that would be the end. That would be a sort of solution to it. I don't know where China stands on this as well. So, so it's just going to become a full-blown proxy war then, <laughs> uh, more so than it has, you know, become in the past. That seems. Uh... See, I, I'm of two minds because I feel like you know, <clears throat> in in one sense, having Turkey, Russia, Saudi Arabia get involved on the Palestinian side may only stand to protract the conflict even further. Like, if you have more ability for the Palestinians to resist Israeli aggression, like, you know, this is just going to keep going. I feel like there has to be some... And I guess there's been a diplomatic solution on the table for a long time now that, you know, it's been negotiated and back and forth and there have been talks, but I feel like, you know, the key to conflict ending has to be some sort of diplomatic detente, and I'm not sure which great power is going to be the one to broker that. I feel like the U.S. has lost, especially under Trump, has lost all sort of um, ability 
you know, in the eyes of the Palestinians to be like an objective broker, um, but like between the two countries. So I don't know then if if it's a you know another European power or you know somebody else that's able to, Saudi Arabia even that's able to come in and um, you know negotiate talks. But you got to think there's a diplomatic option somewhere or else. I think Ross Jordan. Right. I mean, has the, Jordan traditionally been? I mean, there's there's a the few ones keeping the peace. There's a few countries. Jordan's one. I mean, Oman's another. Like, there are these countries that have typically been kind of, sort of, just stayed out of conflict and stayed quiet on stuff. Morocco is one of them, to be honest. You know, for a while until they normalize ties. Like, um, so yeah, maybe one of these countries can do it. Do you know what the response of those countries have been to the conflict? Like, what Jordan, Morocco? It's a great question. My guess is Jordan. This? Well, Morocco normalized ties with Israel, so I think they've sort of... You can normalize their... ties and still be like, that's not cool. Can you, though? <laughs> um, I I feel like Jordan's probably taken in a bunch of Palestinian refugees that have resulted from the crisis, and so they're probably a bit sympathetic um, to the Palestinian cause, and also just being a, a Muslim country, they probably see the importance of, of supporting Palestine. Um, I don't know if they said anything explicitly about about the conflict um, but perhaps as you said they want to, to broker talks uh, someone put in the comment section about Egypt I think the e Egyptian uh, it's all starting to come back to me now I mean um, mm. I was a bit thrown off by the losing the screen there but yeah I think Egypt's um, been quite a big mediator hasn't it I think Egypt's quite heavily involved because of Gaza and the tunnels and, and stuff as well so mm -hmm. I think it could be a really good one yeah I, I don't know and the, the main thing I wanted to sort of tie this back to as well was obviously things between the UAE um, Saudi Arabia sort of other Arab states the Gulf states were starting to normalize before this happened I think you you guys wanted to talk about this as well and how how this conflict could um, impact that so I think Netanyahu was meant to visit the UAE in August like I can't remember what it was. It was earlier this year, but the, the trip mm -hmm. got cancelled due to coronavirus. But I don't know, that was quite symbolic for me, I think, of... of I don't know. And then I think Sudan has normalised relations with Israel now. I think that was dependent on um, some terms set by the US in regards to aid and stuff as well. Uh, I don't know yep. how this will impact that. Yeah, yeah, I think... Yeah, it's a great question. I think the... Um, like even within these countries so I think there's been four countries now that have normalized ties Morocco's one I think Bahrain the UAE um, you know and Sudan and I think you know even within these countries you see like a lot of division in terms of the actual people in these countries you know some of them feeling like you know it's good that we're normalizing ties with Israel and focusing on ourselves and other people who feel like the country is sort of um, giving up on or becoming a traitor to their own people in a sense um, so we've talked about this on I think a couple podcasts now but the Saudi Arabia question and when they normalize and if they normalize is a, a really big one um, you know Michael Hilliard from the Redline podcast said he feels like uh, you know Saudi Arabia is uh, it's just a matter of you know what's the right time um, there's no rush for them to do it so they can wait until you know they get really good concessions or there's just um, you know the stars align and it makes sense for them to do it um but i feel like if and when that happens that's going to be a really big uh 
a big factor in this conflict if Saudi Arabia, you know, not turns their back on Palestine, but makes that geopolitical decision. So I think that'll be a sort of a fulcrum, a fulcrum point as well. Not so, no, sorry, go ahead, Clay. Yeah, just sort of following up on that. I think we've talked a lot about the uh, Israeli-Palestine uh, violence, and I think that's a perfect transition um, into the next sort of major piece of yeah. political news this week, which were the talks between Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran. Um, you were talking about, you know, Saudi-Israeli normalization and sort of saving this as a card um, that, you know, the Israeli and, uh, and Saudi Arabian leaders could sort of, you know, save for a rainy day. It seems like now is not the time for that normalization to happen, especially as, you know, talks are opening up with uh, Iran and Turkey. Um, I was wondering what you guys thought about the significance um, of the talks that happened between Saudi uh, Arabia uh, and Iran and Saudi Arabia and Turkey, uh, and if you could provide some context. I just I, I thought to build upon what Andrew was just saying about um, the normalization of ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel, they, they, those two have had a um, an informal relationship for quite a long time, actually, I think. Uh, they're basically allies. They were they're basically, well, not allies, but they work together on quite a lot of things. And I think like this, this is where it ties in with the, the talks this weekend. I think the business environment and the sort of economic intelligence sort of sense um, wasn't necessarily the, the sort of the dynamic in the Middle East there of that was not the same as the diplomatic dynamic. Um, and I think that the diplomatic dynamic is now sort of catching up with the business dynamic um, where different countries I mean, you've got Qatar that's linked to Iran. Oman mediates for Saudi Arabia and Iran and America and the U.S. as well. Um, I think I think things in the Middle East. Uh, I don't know if I'll get slated in the comments here again, but are starting to become more business orientated, or it's sort of becoming a, a. It strikes me as sort of let's just get on with business now. They're putting aside these conflicts that they had previously, and they're moving towards. Um, more along the line, it's more, it's more for more, for the the Arab states that have recognised Israel. It's probably more profitable for them to just get along now and stop. They've, I think they've cooperated. You, the UAE, Israel, the Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, and there was one more state as well. They were going to form a defensive alliance against Iran um, a couple of months ago. There was, I think, I did that in a this week in geopolitics episode. Um, I think that just is more reflected of of the business practices there. Uh, and the sort of gr the cold war between Iran and Saudi Arabia as well that's been going on for a while I think things th what I'm trying to say is th the the surface is starting to reflect the essence underneath um, I think Peter, yeah. yeah sorry I'm going on too much but go ahead no yeah. no I, I was just going to agree I think you know what what you're saying about these like um, you know historic divisions between different countries in the region I think a lot of that was engendered by the United States as well. Like, I think the U.S. has a big part to play in that. And I think when you see the U.S. now, um, you know, removing troops from Afghanistan, just becoming less involved in the Middle East, trying to pull out, I think you see now, okay, now that the U.S. isn't um, sort of the bedrock of a lot of these, you know, areas of conflict, that now, you know, these countries can begin to think about what it might look like to coexist and to work together and to, um, you know, like, develop together um, and I think that is a very positive sign um, for the region 
you know, not to say that things are immediately going to become, you know, pie in the sky because the U.S. is becoming less engaged in the region. But I think, um, you know, I've even written articles about this before, but I feel like there's so much potential when you merge these these poles of influence in the Middle East as opposed to keeping them keeping them separate. It's very much dependent on the U.S. administration, in, in my view, as well. Like Biden, mm-hmm. Biden's more receptive to Iran. Um, I think the, the two weeks before the Biden inauguration, um, the Saudis lifted the blockade on Qatar, which was very interesting. Um, I think that was because they, the Saudis were sort of being pushed into being hostile to, to not host, I don't want to say hostile, but more anti-Iran by the Trump administration. And I think knowing, I think, I can't remember what the sanctions were over exactly. It was more, it was about Iran's violent behavior or something like that. Um, but I think now that Biden's in office and he's more open to Iran, Saudi Arabia has more flexibility flexibility in regards to Iran, and maybe that's a reason. Another reason why these talks have popped up now as well. Um, there's less pressure to the Trump. Trump. I think Trump very much went through Saudi Arabia and Israel in the Middle East. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the the Crown Prince. I think he came into power in 2017 and in a bit of a flashpoint as well. I'm not an expert in the Middle East, but yeah, I think I think with Trump gone and Biden in, in office and more receptive to to Iran, Saudi Arabia has got more room to maneuver there. Um, and I think there are some probably some places that Saudi Arabia and Iran could work on together. Maybe I don't know. Uh, oh, without a doubt. I mean, thinking, did you? Yeah, geographically speaking, when you think about Iran and Saudi Arabia, they're both on either side of, like, the Persian Gulf. Yeah. And then I think also you have the UAE and Oman over there, and Oman has traditionally been sort of, a, as we said, like a passive player. So I think um, I think they've actually been called, like, the Switzerland of the Middle East in some sense to try and stay out of things. Um, but I think with the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Iran all sort of arbitrating over that really key, um, like, oil throughway. I think that could be a really, especially now that, you know, COVID's nearing an end and you're going to start seeing a lot more commercial travel. And, you know, I just think, the, as you said, the business, the economic potential of, of partnering is really high right now. Um, and I think one issue, prob- sorry, go ahead. Just like the one issue I see with the whole partnering with Iran is, is Iran going to stop supporting terrorist networks that kind of mess up, you know, all these states, right? Like the Houthis are clearly being a pain to Saudi Arabia. Um, and if they win the the Yemeni civil war, which they seem to be on track with backing from Iran, um, that's like a then Iran is sort of put a belligerent neighbor in power next to um, Saudi Arabia. And it, it there's someone in the chat. Simon has been uh, saying that in a documentary on Al Jazeera, it was the way in which Iran is sharing, uh, I believe he said technology. Um, and uh, ammunitions with Hamas to make them more technologically advanced and um, even if they're talking with Iran and therefore sort of putting formal Saudi um, uh, Israeli normalization or just other Israeli normalization like formally uh, back I don't think they want that in terms of economic ties as we were all um, sort of talking about and so does Iran then change their behavior do they not and then that sort of makes all these talks sort of ultimately not pan out um what do you guys sort of view of like the iran sponsorship of terrorism and how that impacts all of these talks with you know saudi arabia and other countries 
from what I was reading, sorry, I think I cut you off there, Andrew. But from what I was reading, no, no, no. Um, the the Saudis, I think, I think it was Mohammed bin Salman that said he wanted he he wanted a, Iran to sort of scale that back. Um, I think it ties into what I said. They want to work together in some areas, um, and he said, "What did he say? Would no one wants a hostile militia on their border or something?" He said that Iran was supporting hostile militias um, in places. Um, I think I don't think Iran's necessarily going to scale that back, but just because of Saudi Arabia, they support Hezbollah in in Lebanon. Um, I think. And obviously, there's the, the whole dyma- dynamic of Iran versus Israel as well. Israel doesn't want Iran to have nuclear weapons, and they 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 obviously use Hezbollah, and I think I don't know if Hamas is tied to Iran or not. But uh, and then you've got the Houthis in Yemen as well that they support. I don't think I think it's a leverage point for them. They're not going to give that up just because of some talks with Saudi Arabia necessarily. I, that's that, that's my view on it. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, historically, um, you know, I think you're right. 1979, there was the big revolution, um, you know, where they overthrew their aristocracy, and that sort of scared Saudi Arabia because they were based on a very similar sort of um, regime hierarchy. And so if that same, you know, um, energy from the populace in Iran carried over to Saudi Arabia, it could have fundamentally, you know, dismantled the way that they hold power in Saudi Arabia. So... I think there's been a history of, you know, Saudi Arabia viewing Iran um, and, you know, the way that Iran approaches their politics is potentially threatening. Um, That being said, I think, you know, for the past 20 years, the U.S. has sort of been that broker between Saudi Arabia and Iran in terms of what's actually able to be accomplished. And I think, um, you know, perhaps they're willing to test the waters and see what's possible when just, you know, the two of them working together without that U.S. influence may be... um, Maybe they can get more concessions, get more things done. Um, I mean, we'll see. You know, Iran's not a, a perfect country by any means, but they also do have somewhat of a, a strong economy relative to the rest of the region and the stock market that you see, you know, U.S. investors investing in and, um, you know, big population, natural resources. So there's potential there, I think. The European Union seem, seems quite keen to bring Iran um, closer to sort of the West. I don't. In, in my website, I say that ARGS doesn't believe in concepts such as the West and stuff. But Europe, to, to Europe and uh, North America, I think they're just. I think it's another. Like you say, it's another place. It's somewhere that money's going to be made, and I think, and the, obviously the oil dynamic as well is quite big. So I think the EU is keen to bring Iran sort of normalize things with Iran. Um, I think. I think a lot of countries are probably quite keen to to normalize things with iran but i think the, the u.s and I think in principle Israel, yeah but I, it just seems like right like the, that goes back to like the talks that right i bet in principle say Arabia would love to normalize talks with iran but given history and just where iran finds itself and the actions that it does it sort of makes a lot of constraints to really sort of fulfill on these ideas of actually you know engaging with iran and bringing them into a more western sphere of influence um and here's going to be the really uh american ignorant of europe thing but you you say like europe is really interested in getting iran to be part of the west and i think you saw that after sort of trump pulled out of the jcpoa they did their best to um 
still provide sanctions relief as as much as um, they could. But like, e like, how strong does is is the EU's desire to do things? Does that matter over each individual state that really has control um, over foreign policy? Um, and over the U.S., who has a very sort of centralized, you know, foreign policy decision-making, centralized, albeit erratic, but um, at least sort of, you know, clear and powerful foreign policy, whereas the EU seems to have a, a, a much weaker and more, like, soft, powery foreign policy? Um, I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. I think, like I say, I think it's more of an economic thing. Um. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, the, what what struck me is what Blinken said at the China-US summit um, was that the relationship between um, China and the US would be adversarial where it, where it must be, um, cooperative where it can be, and and something else like that. I think, I think that, that sort of, I don't know, it sounds like I'm going off on a tangent there, that but ties in that ties in with the sort of the twenty first century geopolitical dynamic and that applies here. There's areas where they can cooperate. Um I think for the EU it's energy, um they probably want to be less reliant on Russia. Um so Iran's probably another good source of, of energy there. Um so that's something they can cooperate on. And then obviously human rights human rights and uh, other various things they won't cooperate on. It'll be an adversarial relationship. Um it's just it's quite a multilateral, multifaceted thing, uh, which is like like I say, reflective. I th I think that Blinken quote will be in the history books, if, if you ask me. I think that's that's right in the sense of like you know I think people tend to view geopolitics through a very like romantic lens of um, you know like this idea that human rights actually matters, for example, and you know maybe I'm being too pessimistic here, but I see human rights as very much like a geopolitical tool, um, you know, more so than countries actually really caring what countries are doing. Um, and I think, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, I think there is that, oh, I think it was 2017, there was that Qatar blockade with like Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and a few other countries because I think um, they accused, you know, Qatar of aiding um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and like the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think that there's probably a lot of countries who, you know, behind the scenes intentionally or not have money going to some unsavory groups. I think it's tough to control those sorts of things sometimes. Um, but I think when you can make that public in an effort to get concessions or to make another country do something, that's when, you know, you want to make it seem like you actually care. Um, so I think, yeah, in the case of Iran, like you said, there's probably countries who are very willing to turn a blind eye to some money going to like you said, the Houthis in Yemen, for example, if it means that they're not reliant on, on Putin for their natural gas. Um, I mean, that's also something that we'll see in time. I mean, would you... I don't know. If I'm trying to get my natural gas, do I want it from... Is Iran a more reliable gas partner or or Russia? Right? Like, no one's blowing up a, a Russian, you know, Ukraine's, energy production. Ukraine and Nord Stream 2, just look at those... Um, I think Nord, Nord Stream 2 was basically Russia and Germany saying to you, Ukraine, we've had enough <laughs> yeah. of you messing about with our gas supply. Like we, I think it's a, a majority of German's, German natural gas exports come from Russia. So I think, yeah. I think maybe... 80%? Could, no. 
80 percent. I, I wanted like to say 80 but it's oh, just okay. a lot i think yeah <laughs> but yeah look the, the, if you think about it that it's a way to diversify away like if germany can have 50 percent of its gas 70 percent of its gas yeah well in, in the future if, if, if they could use iran to diversify away then from russia that just gives them more flexibility i'll just put it up on the screen like you can yeah see that'd be the, great the map to see like the distances between russia and germany and uh, iran and germany yeah i'll put a little path up um yeah just you can have a Actually, pipeline that different i haven't done the math though. yeah can you guys see it on the screen yep yeah so uh, the you can have a pipe i think there is there is a pipeline from georgia uh, through Turkey and into Europe now as well. I think from from Azerbaijan through t Georgia, through Turkey and into Europe as well. I think isn't that yeah. incredible? You can have a pipe. That's such a large geographic distance to. I, it I, is. I, I now, know I'm being impressed by pipeline technology. No, no, but now but... compare this to the, and we're going to get into this, but compare this to the Colonial Pipeline, yeah. which is 5,500 miles. It may be pretty similar, but that's just a U.S. pipeline versus this one traversing like oh, yeah. how many countries? <laughs> Which, like, yeah, if you like transpose that pipeline onto this yeah. one, I'm curious to see what it would look like. I, I think it'd probably be about the same distance, maybe. I don't know. Wild. Slightly, slightly longer, but yeah. Yeah, the world's a wild place. It's funny. Um, so, place. so did you guys want to touch on the Turkish Iranian uh, Turkish Saudi talks at all? As well. Um. Yeah, Andrew, yeah, why, don't, why, why don't you take them off? Take them off. <laughs> um, no, I think it's like a similar. Like we were talking about, like the the different poles in the Middle East coming together um, and engaging in talks. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Clay. I think Michael said it before that he had identified in the region were Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and uh, Turkey. And so when you see the other three, you know, in light of this violence with Turkey and with uh, Palestine. And you see the other three, you know, engaging in talks with one another. That tells me that you know, I think they're seeking to try and encourage more and trying to build more stability in the Middle East. Uh, and I think they see you know more collaboration between the other poles as a way to do that. Um, so I mean, I think I think it's a positive signal for the for the region um, looking forward. I think it's ultimately going to benefit, um, yeah, development in the region. Uh, but like we know from our forecasting experience, talks don't equal, you know, action. Talks don't equal um, you know, anything concrete or material. So we'll have to see. I think I think it t again it ties in what we said about the multilateralism. Um, Turkey, I think that the Saudis boycotted. Tur they had an informal boycott of Turkish goods and Turkish. Saudi trade dropped by ninety percent. I think maybe Turkey's thinking, with their with their own domestic economic situation at the moment, they're thinking, well, goodness me, we probably need to sort things out in that re in that regard. Um, and so trade with Saudi Arabia will probably help offset some of the negative impacts of of Turkey's econ economic situation. It's a very basic uh, uh, take on it, but I don't know. Maybe that could be part of the reason. I think the Khashoggi thing as well. I'm not sure if I'm saying the, the name right, but that comes into That's it as right. well. That was the low of the relations in 2018, I think. And may, maybe it is. Well. To, to, oh yeah, with 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 Turkish Saudi relations. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe this has to do with 
with Biden as well recognising the Armenian genocide. I don't know what role that plays in this and whether that's pushing Turkey away from the US or uh, as well. Uh, and then obviously Russia and Turkey have a, an, that's another relationship where they cooperate in some areas and they're adversarial in some areas and maybe Turkey wants to move towards Saudi Arabia to counter Russia. Um, the oil price war in, was it 2020? Uh, that was sort of Saudi Arabia versus Russia. Mm-hmm. As well. Wait, was that price war early 2020 before the pandemic? I thought it was during it the pandemic. Been during the pandemic, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. then there was another price war, like a, another year maybe before that. Um, but on your point, Ross, with the whole, does it have to do with the Armenian genocide? I, probably the part that Turkey's more pissed about. I believe they're not getting their F-35s. Yeah. Um, they've been kicked out of that program, and I would imagine for Erdogan, not getting F-35s is probably a a much bigger blow to his. Um, power and all these calculations than the U.S. recognizing, you know, a multi-decades-old genocide that Erdogan wasn't, you know, and most, you know, people in Turkish power weren't, you know, involved in. Um, so it's probably like the F-35 thing, which is, you know, a, a, a major, a major deal. Um, My guess is also like this has probably been the most volatile period of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that we've seen in a long time, just going from, you know, Obama to Trump to Biden, like over the last like 12 years, this is probably less than 12 years now. Um, But, you know, just thinking about what that says to the Middle East in terms of like, if the U.S. is my ally, but the U.S.'s stance towards the Middle East can change, fluctuate that much over the course of three different leaders, which I guess you shouldn't be so surprised about, but it just goes to show like, you know, the U.S. may not be as reliable of a partner as you would need it to be to rely as heavily as the Middle East has done in the past, you know, on the U.S. And so working together, working with more local, you know, countries, rebuilding, reengaging in talks with, you know, former quote-unquote enemies is just a more stable way to move forward in the region without having to worry about, you know, if Trump runs again in 2024 and becomes president again, how is that going to change things? And are we going to have to go back? Like, it's just a lot. Um, is now yeah. the most erratic, or was that you know Bush and and then Obama, and then just the entire Obama? Right, you, Bush started think... two wars, then started to wind it down. Obama was like, "We're going to stick with it," and then let's troop surge, and then let's leave, and then let's draw red lines in Syria, and then let's not follow through, and then let's pivot to Asia. I think the only thing Trump did was the way in which they dealt with Iran, right? Obama was like, let's get him a nuclear deal and just forget about him. And Trump was like, we'll drop the biggest bombs on them. It'll be tremendous. And, um, but I mean, like, that's like about it, right? They were both pulling out, focusing more on, on Asia. If anything, there was more consistency end of Obama into Trump into Biden, who's doing a lot of the same things, just, you know, not throwing it in with a lot of you know, crazy verbiage along with it um, than what you had from Bush into Obama. I mean, Obama was an extremely, like, volatile um, Middle East policy um, that changed, you know, drastically um, during his his term. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I get stuff for interpretation. I just see the the Bush to Obama transition being a bit more stable than, like, Trump to Biden, for example. Um, Because I think... I mean, messaging was probably more stable, but in terms of like actual actions, right? It was, we're pulling out of Iraq. We're then, you know, doing a huge, you know, troop deployment to fight ISIS in Iraq. We're 
pulling out of Afghanistan, oversurging troops in Afghanistan. Um, yeah, it just seemed like there was probably more, in terms of like policy, more volatility. Um, rhetoric and stances and all of that, I think, yeah, tremendously more in the last uh, three years. Uh, I mean, last three presidents, sorry. Um, I, I, I kind of view it through the through the lens of like the whole the whole of the the geopolitical sphere has just been has shifted in so many ways um talking from bush to sort of to biden it's it's not the same that the tech like the technological revolution we've had the internet um and then sort of the rise of china um russia's back sort of back as a regional slash great power i just think the whole sort of floor of geopolitics like the the u.s is no longer the world's souls sort of power pole um anymore i think that that's in my opinion that's the reason why we're seeing these sort of things yeah there's there's no yeah the 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 world is sort of shifting to i mean china says that and russia say they want sort of a multipolar world and it's starting to look more that way i think that is part of the reason probably why we're seeing some of these things happen at the moment in, in yeah, options. I think yeah. um, it was in 2018. There was some like nonpartisan Senate report that like the U.S. can no longer fight uh, a two-front war um, against you know uh, China and Russia, yeah. which they before I think in as in like 2016 they could, as of 2018 they couldn't. You know I think that was hypersonic missile uh, development, the the aircraft, um, the anti-aircraft. Uh, missiles that China has developed, uh, a lot of that technology has sort of disrupted the U.S.'s extreme military advantage where they b- before could fight a two-front war against Russia and China or fight a single-front war and defend um, its sphere of influence, which would have been Europe and uh, other critical allies. Like, that military advantage has shrunk, and so I think that greatly changes things because the U.S. just can't be, can't do everything. Um, whereas there was that unipolar moment between like like the late 80s into um probably the 2008 financial crash yeah um i i think the, the like having studied history as well and looking at and sort of taking an interest in geopolitical history things are starting to reflect more of perhaps the medieval period um than they are than the sort of the cold war or perhaps even the they're more reflective of sort of the imperial era uh, maybe maybe less so, but there, it just seems it seems as though things have sort of swung back six hundred years back to sort of when we had the Holy Roman Empire and and Russia um, and was it was sort of off in the east. I don't know. And China, China's China historically has always been a, a very powerful and um, sort of it's it's always it's been. I think China was probably they had more of a civilization than sort of Europe if you go back 2000 maybe well after the fall of the Roman Empire China China's always been a leading global power if if you get what I mean not necessarily mm-hmm. in the sense that they can project power globally but I don't know it, it, and and Persia was always traditionally a a power um before before sort of the age of imperialism um uh, I'm just trying to think of other places like that. All, all well, it makes sort- sense, right? Isn't that the whole sort of image that China has in mind with the Belt and Road Initiative to try and go back to that time of like the Silk Road, where there was a lot more 
um, influence, uh, you know, yeah. concentrated in that region of the world and along those same sort of, um, you know, pathways. I think that makes a lot of sense that the world might start to look like that. If, you know, a lot of those like relationships are being rebuilt. If, if yeah, you... and actually on that front, I think actually a big thing on that, um, someone in the comments um, said de-dollarization by the decade. I know we have a, we'll get to, you know, a lot of questions at the end. I just think that's a really good question, yeah, good question. Um, and related to this. Um, I don't, if if I were to forecast de-dollarization by the end of the decade, I would probably be around 30% likelihood right now. Um I think a lot of it, you know, depends now. I would say the dollar is probably in its most precarious position since 08. Um, as of right now, I think um, I am not freaking out about the fears of inflation that I think a lot of that, you know, some people in the U.S. and around the world are. But I think it's something that definitely has to keep an eye on, not something that can just be brushed aside. And if you know, Biden does brush aside it and overheats the economy a little too fast and then triggers um, another financial, you know, meltdown, you know, handled by mismanagement of the U.S. in terms of the financial system. You know, in 2008, it was the private sector. In 2021, it would be the public sector. I don't think that matters internationally. It just matters that it was the U.S. causing global financial downturn. Uh, then that could accelerate uh, or increase the likelihood of de-dollarization. Um, and I think it'll be, you know, in some ways a fintech battle between um, the U.S. central bank and the Chinese central bank and what China can do to um, signal currency credibility that um, traditionally is um, authoritarian structured governments have struggled relative to their um, liberal democratic partners. Um, there's a great piece in Foreign Affairs uh, called The Age of Magic Money, I believe, that talks about the different advantages that um, countries such as the U.S. have um, due to both being a reserve currency, but also the nature of being a, uh, a, a democracy um, as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm at about probably a 30 percent likelihood of de-dollarization and taken over um, uh, by China uh, as the world reserve currency or maybe a, a, a U.N., global currency think, that everyone think, wanted in 2008 but that's probably very unlikely um, i think there's I'll more, know. more chance of of a global currency than that there is a move if there is a move away from the dollar i don't think it will be towards china i think it will be towards a global reserve currency i think but who would manage that i, I have no idea um i don't know some people have suggested bitcoin as the global reserve currency but it'd probably be too volatile but and it's it, too centralized already it's a distribu uh, distributed uh, ledger. <laughs> well, it's it's distributed, but in terms of the ownership of Bitcoin, yeah. that is yeah, very it's, centralized. It's true, but what I'm trying to say is there, there yeah. might there might be another kind of currency currency that rises up and becomes the global like the global. Um, I don't know. Like it all ties in with the gold standard as well. Like the move away from the gold standard. I think it was Nixon moved away from the gold standard for the U.S. in Which 19 was tremendous. Yeah, phenomenal move. And then we moved away, I think, shortly after as well. Um, I think That's that the Bretton Woods yeah. But I think I mean Bretton Woods didn't work, by the way. Barely even worked. Just a whole facade. I don't a huge know. Huge mirage. Yeah, it, it was this whole system after World War Two where they set up fixed countries would peg their currency to the U.S. dollar, um, and so it would have you know stable exchange rates. But there was a lot of like 
shady stuff going on between countries. Like the system only was in operation truly for about three years before it was down. And most countries um, actually like shirked around um, the requirements. Um, yeah, Bretton Woods was um, much more hyped and they talk about it a lot as being this big deal, but it didn't really do much. Um, the only thing it did was give people confidence that these currencies had stable exchange rates because it was they thought it was actually pegged to the US dollar, but it wasn't. So it was mostly like psychological effects. Um, well, it's the same today, is it not? With with the US dollar and, and stuff like that, it's all it's the floating currencies, aren't they? They're based on people's perception of their worth, perception of worth, and also like how much, like what what's the return on deficit spending in terms of creating economic demand? That's how like inflation. If if your deficit spending to create economic activity that wouldn't otherwise exist, you won't have inflation because that money is. It's being like created on the end yeah um but if you put in too much money and it's not actually creating that output then you get inflation because now you've put more money into the system um and democracies are traditionally better at that because of you know there, there's transparency because you vote yeah and supposedly with the federal reserve over there um but yeah, no I, I do think blockchain and and digital currency is the future i yeah. don't see bitcoin i mean no I'm... i have a I wouldn't say Bitcoin. I didn't think Bitcoin. I wouldn't say Bitcoin. We should have a whole cryptocurrency episode. I yeah, think. no, that, I think that, that, that's a good, good idea. We've got some strong opinions. The, the, techno the technology behind it, I think, is the future. Not necessarily Bitcoin will replace the dollar. Um, the, the, the thing about It'd the, be Ethereum too. The, yeah, there's a the, the crypto space is so dynamic, and uh, a new currency could come along. Like, look at Doge with with Elon Musk. Like, you never thought Doge would ever go anywhere, but now it's like everyone's hyping it up and personally mm -hmm. I think it's a load of rubbish um, not financial and advice but yeah I don't know that's a not to butt in too much but I don't crypto is surprisingly like not dynamic like if you look at what the top cryptocurrencies are now versus what they were um, say five years ago you know back in 2016 2017 it's a lot of the same right Bitcoin Ethereum Ripple um, Cardano yeah um but I'm just, you know, I'm just Bitcoin, thinking, Litecoin, like the top coins, Doge, like all of these are actually kind of the potential is there, though, in my view. Like it's same, same with the social media and the internet. Like in my view, I don't think Twitter will be a, like the the main platform of social media in the next ten years. I don't think, I don't think YouTube. Actually, I don't know if I should say this. Uh, I'll probably, I'll stick away from YouTube soon as well. Yeah, <laughs> I just think, I think Facebook will, pro Facebook starting to decline, Instagram starting to decline. I think the the same thing could happen with cryptocurrencies. Like, there's nothing stopping people from adopting other currencies, or uh, in the same way that people are sort of leaving Instagram. It, it's all the the flu the fluidity is that the potential for fluidity is there. Um, in practice, it's different, obviously, but there's there is potential for it. I, I would, I, as I say, I would compare it to the ch the change in social media and, and stuff, as, and as technology advances as well. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, crypto in terms of being like wide use, I just don't think people would, you know, like if you put your money in a bank and the bank goes completely bankrupt, I think you're insured up to two hundred fifty thousand or maybe five hundred thousand dollars in the U.S. Um, Funding money doesn't really exist it's all on computers I'm, i mean that's insurance right like you don't get that with your your bitcoin like if you there, there's just on that same sort of like system and faith so i don't 
see private crypto replacing fully like you know fiat that governments do but i could see definitely like a digital dollar which they've been increasingly talk about um and all these digital currencies really being like i could see paper money being gone by the end of the decade oh it's a waste yeah but i think there's also the flip side right you put your money in a bank sure you insured that much but at the same time if the government then decides to pump out a bunch more dollars, like that's the whole like inflation side of the trade you know, or thinking you know where it's like if they decide to pump out more money now the money that i put into the bank isn't worth what i put in initially um and at least ostensibly that can't be done with at least bitcoin obviously different cryptos have different algorithms that you know, operate differently but. i personally would rather put my faith in a in a blockchain than a bank i don't know i just i don't know you look right at- like but think about like bitcoin right like they we can just fork it for days and create you know magical like there is a lot of like the same things that central banks do that happens in the crypto space right you have bitcoin cash gold there's probably a bitcoin diamond like a lot of different forks that have created billions in wealth just in an instant by an, an, a, a consensus um i think young blaze has got it for me so crypto is in its infancy as we move towards its mass adoption a coin will be used for day-to-day transactions far into the future i think i think that's kind of kind of summarized what i think as well yeah i think i mean i think the whole ico idea and decentralizing finance and raising capital that like ethereum has done i think that has like a lot of potential um I, I think crypto is a ton of applications just in terms of like day-to-day trading just and purchases as of right now it's it's just not feasible like what's no. the average bitcoin fee or ethereum fee or any of that like it's that being said people do it people do buy pizza and coffee with bitcoin and, and people still barter for goods and services you know i think i think bitcoin no, no i'm not saying it's why oh, okay what's to stop you like people say bitcoin's the digital gold you could have bit like people have bitcoin in a in an account and then instead like you wouldn't go around in the in the days of old you wouldn't go around with golden gold bars and trade them you the, the money represented gold i think it will be the same with bitcoin you might get a, you might get currencies that are like pegged to bitcoin and it might you might have i don't know that's, that's how it used to work with gold like a pound a british pound was a pound of gold at one point mm-hmm. i think maybe there'll be something similar for bitcoin or a, another currency I think that's the main thing for me is that I don't think it's going to be either or. Like I think people tend to conflate sometimes like Ethereum with Bitcoin is like they're both cryptocurrencies, so they both are going to serve the same function within no, exactly. this blockchain ecosystem. I agree that like different coins will have different features that you know make them unique. You know maybe Bitcoin is the store of value and Ethereum is more you know transactional or you know, use the smart contracts and they become big with like car purchases, house purchases, but then there's something else that's you know for your day-to-day transactions. Um, yeah, it's possible. I think the fact that it's in its infancy makes it, like Clay and I have a rule that like, if you're trying to forecast an event that's gonna happen 10 years into the future, you have to accept that like, you're probably just gonna be super wrong 10 years is a long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're probably talking about a forecast that's 5X that in terms of when we're gonna see it, you know, come to fruition potentially. Um, so it's probably really hard to tell. It might look super different than what it looks like now. And I think just tying back to how we started off this conversation, I think, you know, crypto adoption in part will be does Biden handle inflation well, right? Like handling inf- inflation is the a big concern that I think drove crypto adoption at the start of the pandemic. 
That's why you've seen like a 1200% increase in some of these cryptos over the last year was, you know, fears of inflation starting to actually materialize if that continues. Um, I, I think a world in which most people have their money in crypto is probably a very unstable world. So I wonder if maybe that's a bias of mine for why I kind of downplay the possibility of crypto adoption. Like some part of me doesn't want to balance with that world. Yeah, because it's not going to be a play. I mean, like, right, like if, if most of our money is like, I don't have dollars, I all of my money is, you know, a mix of Bitcoin and Ethereum think, and all of this. Like, I think it ties in with your view of the world. Like my, my personal view is a very realist sort of, as I say, like I, I read a book recently called Neo-Feudalism. Uh, and that sort of touched, the, struck a chord with me. I think we're going to sort of a neo-feudal world. Right? The, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. Um, the, the, I don't know, the, it seems as, as though maybe materially we have more, but the, the power distribution seems to have, seems to be more reflective of, of perhaps the medieval era. Um, you had sort of, a, you, it's more decentralized, but then I don't know how to describe it. You'd have to read or listen to the book. It's a really good book, I thought. Um, and, and, and that ties I can't, I can't remember why I started with this now but it ties no, in with it's Bit- kind of true it ties in with Bitcoin as well um, because it's more in my cryptocurrency in my view is, is sort of reflective of a realist is more what's, what's the word I'm looking for it's Real. it fits better in with a realist view of the world whereas if you view the world through a sort of liberals liberal not liberal in the US sense but like a liberal international order based on liberal principles. I think people get confused. I want to make sure I dif- differentiate here between liberal in the US sense or liberal as in um, like the ideology sense, if you get what I mean. I don't, I, yeah, the classically liberal versus the yeah. left wing. Yeah. yeah. I think I think let's just say liberal and left wing for yeah. differences. So I think li- the liberal um, world of, of, of rules is not sort of compatible with crypto necessarily or that there's some there's some conflict to be had there yeah see like my view would be that crypto is kind of like a libertarian i idealist fantasy right like that's another way of viewing it mm. that like we have this completely decentralized financial system like we can all get together and and approve of things on the blockchain network together and all you know have this decentralized sort of like democratic financial system like from that view it sort of is a an idealist sort of technology too um, I do think, though, the adoption of crypto as as a hedge, I think that is a very realist um, perspective on things, though. Yeah, that, the, the, book, oh, the book I was talking about, they, they sort of talked to, yeah, I think it links in what you say about the libertarian thing, like crypto is sort of a hedge against an increasingly centralized, an increased centralization of capital in fewer and fewer hands. Uh, it's sort of a hedge against that. And more... I don't know. It's sort of dis. It's the. It's sort of networks versus hierarchies. Um, I think is what I read, and like it's it's more of it obviously as a network, the powers going down downwards towards the mass, the masses or the mass. Um, whereas with with fiat currencies, all the powers in the hands of the central banks. Um, so yeah. Which conceivably, central banks and democracies are therefore, in some ways, you know, institutions of the people, which is. Yeah, there is that as well. Democratic. Um, and I think, you know, your idea of that, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I mean, if you look at absolute poverty, that's just, I think 2020 and 2021 are probably going to be exceptions. If that continues, it, it'll 
start being a trend. But as of right now, you know, the trend has been a massive escape um, of global poverty. Um, and I think the thing is, you know, as you have just more wealth, um, just because of how I think it's the prey to distribution, it just exacerbates in inequality. But you know, if if that baseline is, is increasing, which in the U.S. and other developed countries it hasn't, but globally it has, um, I would say, uh, you know, on average things have gotten, just over time in history, with regards to except for like the last two years, things have just gotten better on Earth, um, financially, health-wise, and all of that. And so I don't think, I, I think it's good just to keep that okay, into perspective. Perhaps, it's true, perhaps. though. You can't deny data. It's an immaterial uh, sense. Data doesn't tell a man. story, Clay. People tell a story. You know that. <laughs> data does tell a story. He wrote a whole book with data telling a story. <laughs> no, he told Two. the story. He Two. used data to support it. It's different. Well, it's, 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 different. It's, like the, it's, it's not necessarily a material sense that I'm talking about. The, the book speaks about um, the sort of distribution of power. And obviously, in, in, in the feudal system, you had serfs who weren't necessarily living in in, in a, a ditch in the ground they weren't necessarily badly off for the time but they were they didn't have any power they were owned by their respective lord or knight or whatever they were they were completely under the thumb of those people and uh, it, it, it just it strikes me as sort of you've got bezos and zuckerberg and they're sort of like the the barons and the lord the techno feudal lords of the of the modern day i don't know there's some truth there if like the baseline's getting better but proportionally you know the richer are getting richer at a faster rate such that they're able to maintain the power that they have it almost doesn't matter if your life is getting better if the power is not true like the fact that i think what, what was the number bezos during the pandemic made like 67 billion dollars or something ridiculous like you know the amount that people are making like that the the top point oh oh one percent of people are making you know during times when everybody else is struggling um you know it, it, it's so disproportionate that like i don't know it does make me a bit concerned for for the future i was reading this book um called the winners take all and the whole premise is that you know people like bezos bill gates etc will only um work to help social issues and you know participate in philanthropy so much as you know it doesn't actually impact the power that they hold yeah. if it actually did then they would not be putting money towards it and supporting it and so everything that we see on the surface is this like bettering it's all it's all betterment within the framework of keeping the people in power in power <laughs> or else they wouldn't be supporting you know that change that change in state which you know it's what? one take but so, it's interesting but like that is like so let's take Let's say Bezos himself got sixty-seven billion richer, but that came along with uh, a billion people being escaped out of absolute poverty over the last thirty years. Like, is that a that that would indicate that the system is you know it's not it's just broken. It's also working to a to a degree and is right. There are obviously like unwanted side effects of anything, but right if if you if you're gonna bring out the extreme on the on the on the wealth inequality side is they're also then not bringing in what the i feel like it's taking the average versus the median there you know like sure the average just got better but if the median's still the same you know why would that matter be... right like from an individual in terms of no i guess it all cares about like it comes down to like what you're focusing on like i think you're right like 
I'm, I'm not trying to ignore the fact that you're right. Things have gotten better. People in general, like there's less poverty in the world. Like some of these WHO, UN goals of like, you know, less people are going hungry, dying from malaria, like all this stuff. Like it definitely is getting better. Um, ahead of schedule. And even ahead of schedule, and that's great. Um, then I think there's the next layer of like, okay. It, dr- it drills down in, sorry, the yeah. systems that, you know, put them in that place. Are those getting better? Are like other power structures, power dynamics getting better? I, I don't know. It's probably a, probably a topic for a longer podcast. Um, yeah. Or well, another podcast. It, for me, it drills down into your view on capitalism itself. Like like you say, Bezos and Gates are, are doing certain things that to like they all do humanitarian things to increase their profits. They won't do it because it's good for the world. Like it gets a bit deep, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah. Perhaps time to move on to our final Just topic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we got the colonial pipeline still, haven't we? Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. I totally yeah. forgot. <laughs> we got I'll so let you guys happy. introduce that up here, back. Yeah. Well, before yeah. we drill down into to, to philosophical debates, uh, yeah, well, let's get onto that. Um, so, right. so I don't actually. I, I was hoping one of you guys would introduce it more because obviously you're from the US, so you you know a lot more about it than me. But yeah, wasn't it someone hacked? Wasn't it an Eastern European-based group? I can't remember the name. Hacked uh, U.S. critical infrastructure, namely the U.S. the, the colonial pipeline. I think yeah, it's a group called the Dark Side Hackers. That's um, it. They hacked into a uh, pipeline that originates in like Houston, Texas, I think, and it goes through like Southeast U.S. up uh, up to New York, actually, like up the Eastern Seaboard. Um, and they hacked into it. I don't think they hacked like the most sensitive sort of data um, available, but they um, they hacked it enough. Actually, this is part of the I think question around it is that right? They hacked in, um, and then eventually the colonial pipeline, the people who were running the pipeline, halted um, halted the pipeline. And so we weren't. I think there's still some uncertainty as to whether or not you know that was a proactive move on their part to make sure things didn't get worse or if the hacking was severe enough that it caused them to you know shut down the pipeline i think we're still not clear as to the severity um but yeah they 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 hacked this pipeline apparently it was like a a ransom hacking so they're looking yeah. for money in return um and i think you know because colonial pipeline is a private company um you know it wasn't a, you weren't able to look at their financial statements and do an audit and determine whether or not they paid it but um, I think it was reported Friday that on Wednesday, the pipeline was operational again. So I think that um, people are assuming that they did pay, I think the, the ransom was 75 Bitcoin, going back to our crypto conversation, um, which I think at the time of the payment equals somewhere around $5 million. Um, and, you know, yeah, they paid the money apparently and have been operational again. Um, I'm sure we all saw pictures and different memes and videos during sort of the height of the of the pipeline shutdown, uh, where there was some some panic buying going on when it came to gasoline. I think the pipeline carries jet fuel jet fuel and gas, um, but uh, you know there are some people who I think there's a lot of storylines that can come from this. One being, as you know, Ross, you've talked about the future of cyber warfare and what that looks like and how that's going to affect businesses and countries. I think there's also concern now about the precedent that it sets to pay off of the hacker group. Um, you know, it's just going to embolden more people potentially to do similar activities. But then apparently also the hackers like lost some of their money and shut down already. So like that's what they're saying. 
yeah, that's what they're saying. So, you know, what that means as well. Um, yeah, pretty wild story. Is that, is that... Does it set a precedent? I thought I read that, like, ransom, like, in gen ransomware attacks in general have been going up in that, like, most times companies just, like, pay the fines. Like, that's just, like, a thing. Like, I think, well, I think companies there's a certain percentage Bitcoin. of companies that just stock Bitcoin in order to, like, in advance for paying off. I think it's um, the fact that this is so high profile and the fact that you're doing it at such a big scale with such a large pipeline. I think it's one of the largest um, that, like, it, it, you know, people are probably watching this saying, oh, wow, okay. I don't even have to hack into the most sensitive data operations tech. I can just, you know, hack in, get them scared enough, and then uh, make a good amount of money. Is that the root, roughly, of it there on the screen? Uh, should be mm -hmm. up now. I think it's up a little bit in, but... Okay. Yeah. No, but that's, that's pretty close. Yeah, Texas, up the eastern seaboard. My yeah, U.S. geography hasn't there. failed me there, so... But yeah. No, you did great. Yeah. I, I, what, what, how does this... I, I read something about the... the um, does this have anything to do with the Keystone XL pipeline as well? Is there any dynamic there? Only insofar as they're both pipelines and uh, in right-wing communities, there's been a conversation about how Biden not getting involved on the ransom was part of this like war on natural gas and fossil fuels and hmm. Green New Deal stuff, which I don't hmm. I, I <laughs> think is true. Uh, I'm not I mean, obviously, the Biden administration is obviously tilting themselves towards green energy. Um, I think, unfortunately, they're, I understand why they're linking it with jobs, but what makes clean energy so great is actually it doesn't require a lot of jobs to support, which is what makes clean energy, I mean, green energy um, so cheap now, like wind and solar, it's, it's because you just install them and then they just work. And so there's not nuclear? actually a lot of nuclear, nuclear, nuclear energy. Nuclear energy. Was there was there That's also if only was there anything to do with was there a capacity like would that have would that pipeline have allowed the U.S. to maybe import oil from Canada say rather than if say if the the colonial pipeline was shut down and the Keystone XL was was up and running would that have sort of alleviated some of the pressure maybe I don't think the routes would have been the same. Okay. Like, I think they're supporting different parts of the country. Um, it's just me asking as wrong. an English person. Just, I'm just interested. No, but there was some. Uh, there was some other thing that like prevent, like increased the part of a shortage. I think part of it was just once again like poor government communication. When like you don't explain things, people tend to take them at their worst, and so they're going to go ahead and stockpile gasoline which then just creates feedback loops you saw that in yeah, the pandemic much. when it came to toilet paper like if just like not explaining things to people just doesn't go well and i don't know why like transparent communication just isn't being done when there's a cyber attack on the gas pipeline that provides like half of the energy for um the east coast like that just seems like a time to give people clear communication because it's important um you know, the Biden administration help help themselves out by like sort of saying, "Oh, it'll be solved in a few days," but not they're still there in an issue in the few days that you know needs to be addressed and talked to. So, um, don't really know where I'm going with that. Uh, Andrew, no, I, know. If you wanna... I get what you mean. It's, again, <laughs> no, I was just saying when so, you're a private company, yeah. I think you know you just don't have to disclose as much, and so maybe they're thinking, you know, if we're able to solve this behind closed doors, and even the solution can be sort of clandestine in that way 
is a public company, eventually you'd have to come out and you look at the financial statements and see if they're paying off people or whatever. Um, but I agree, no, you should be from from the outset, hopefully a little bit more communicative, at least to the people that's affecting. Do you think? Do you think it maybe some nefarious actor may have? I don't know. Like they, they, I'm not saying this necessarily happened, but it could happen. Say if someone hacked the pipeline and to muddy the waters in sort of a political warfare avenue, they flood Twitter with or Facebook with panic buying stuff to make people panic buy as well. And that, that's an interesting angle on that. I, mean, I don't know if yeah, that happened. But... Make some good money off that play. Yeah. That'd be smart. I mean, I th- have they said that this group is Russian? You know, there's a dark side. I don't know. Where yeah, they're... dark side. I mean, if it were, then. I mean, Russia's well equipped of, you know, getting their messages spread quickly on social media. But I think also, don't discount the American uh, mind. <laughs> to put yeah. it lightly, yeah. Put it lightly. Well, fear is a strong emotion, I think. And people yeah. got scared, very much. Same, um, same as March 2020, people just... I think in the UK, I was very shocked that some people just, just absolutely go mental and hoarding the Cadbury's chocolate bars off the shelves yep everything <laughs> all the tea was gone it was an absolute spectacle but yeah That's so funny. I'm just joking about the tea I'm not sure about the tea but I'm sure people were stockpiling that but yeah I don't know is there any is there any other geopolitical <laughs> avenues we can explore with this on, on this topic I'm, I'm not really sure I think it's just the increase of cyber warfare and the needs for countries to really boost up there's cyber defense, both for national systems, which was exposed by solar winds, but also like critical infrastructure. Yeah. Like even if this pipeline's being done by a private company, that supplies fifty percent of, you know, the gas, jet fuel, all that other stuff for the East Coast. Like, uh, the U.S. government should, in in the same way that like the FBI and all these other agencies help out with uh, Chinese IP theft um, and other IP issues abroad, they should be doing the same thing domestically. With cybersecurity, and I, I don't doubt that they're, you know, that they're they're not doing nothing, but uh, we clearly need to be investing more in cybersecurity. That that ties in. That reminded me of something I'm actually going to put in my this week in geopolitics. <laughs> you should use NordVPN. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, Young Blaze. Yeah. Young Blaze. No sponsorship deals on the way there yet. Um. Not yet. There <laughs> yeah. is no NordVPN coupon code yet. Oh. Um. What, uh, the U- oh, I was going to say, the UK uh, said accused Russia and China of cyber attacks this week or of some sort of nefarious cyber activity and has actually help, uh, offered to help countries beef up their cyber security against those two, I think, or just in general this week as well, which was quite interesting. I don't know hmm. whether, whether we've had some sort of um, hack or whatever this week. I haven't heard anything, but... Uh, you didn't have the hack, but I know you had the Russian involvement in the Brexit election? Supposedly. Um, Supposedly, there was a report. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the Myth- I was just going to say, there's a TV show called Mythic Quest, and in it they talk about how little people actually care about privacy, and they list off all these different hacks that have happened in the past like 10 years that people have just forgotten about or fallen to the wayside. And it just makes me think, like, similar to human rights, or some, like when these things come to light, is it really because they're that damaging or debilitating or is it you know because now they're able to give an excuse to 
you know, make some other public act against a certain country or a certain actor, a non-state actor. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting. Because I feel like a lot of this stuff must happen way more frequently than we actually know oh, about. Yeah. You know? Probably. Like when it comes to light, why? Probably goes both ways as well, I reckon. Um, oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, there was exactly. a Chinese attack on a on an Indian power plant that, like, knocked out electricity for, like, a large percentage of the population a while back. Was that oh, a thing? Cool. Well, well, they never yeah, formally yeah. accused China, but it was all like they all know it was China. I think I don't want to get this wrong. Um, yeah, that's the thing about cyber security. Like you can, you can hack someone from a completely different country using a VPN, or and I think, I think, I think in the US Russian thing, they were talking about the keyboards that they used and like the Cyrillic keyboards were an in- indicator or something. I don't know. I would have thought if you're a Russian hacker, you wouldn't use a Cyrillic keyboard. It'd be a pretty big giveaway. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's so easy to just deflect blame. What what's the word? Um, plausible deniability, or two words? But yeah, it's... and that gets to into dangerous territory. Of you know, yeah, if you're pointing at the wrong actor when something happens, you know, is there a chance to really frame states for carrying out acts they weren't you know involved in? Yes, we oh. framed Iraq for having WMDs. Yeah. <laughs> what can that lead to? Yeah, exactly. Well, you, I don't know. Nothing went wrong the last time. But the thing is, in that case, we knew they weren't there, but still went in. I'm saying in this case, you could completely fool people into thinking that you know states did stuff that they didn't do. So it's not even like a matter of turning a blind eye or like you know neglecting bad intel. It's like you actually have no control over. You know what is it? What intel you're acting on in terms of knowing whether or not it's good, good intel. Bro, Colin I'm, Powell had yellow cake. Yellow cake uranium. Like I'm, I'm not a hacker, um, so I can't speak to how easy it is to sort of feign these things. But uh, yeah, it, is, it does kind of make me nervous. It is what a hacker would say. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah. Andrew had no involvement in, in in the colonial pipeline. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> Need to say that now explicitly. Right. Maybe on that so, one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that um, I am not a member of Hamas, and Andrew is not a member of Darkside. Right. <laughs> just um, once again to confirm for the stream. Yeah. Just to confirm. All right then. I think we should. Should we go on. to uh, freestyle? Yeah, let's get some freestyle. questions going. Let's get going on TikTok as well. Just pop the live up. Thirty thousand people active apparently, so hopefully we'll get some in. But yeah, first one. We'll knock it out to YouTube. Does anyone have any questions on YouTube about anything we've spoken about this week or, say, this week in the last hour and a half or anything that they want to discuss um, now? So I think we're on TikTok. We've got one person now, two people. It usually takes about 30 seconds a minute for people to find you live. Oh, now they left. Anyone got no, any questions? come back. Someone's talking about... Um, I think Young Blaze was talking about DAPs, uh, decentralized applications and smart contracts. Cut out the control from the middleman. Of course, miners. Oh, was this? Oh, I see you answered that as well. Although yeah, we had a little account. we had a little side crypto conversation in the uh, YouTube comments. Yeah. Someone seemed pretty keen to know where we're from. We'll probably have a crypto episode. Yeah. Crypto special. Yeah, we got back to him as well. Yeah. <clears throat> We need to stop answering all these questions, don't we? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, and save them up for the end. Yeah, Could yeah. do, to be fair. Oh, we got some people coming through on TikTok now. Anyone got any questions on TikTok for us? I can see 
Carlito Villa, OK Killer and just joined. Any questions on anything geopolitical this week? What have I put the title as actually? That's a good. Hello from Germany. Hello. Guten, Guten oh. Abend. I think it's evening now, isn't it? Rachel Louise, Kieran187. Guten Mittag, I think, from the uh, US. I think that's good afternoon. Yeah. We've got four people. Any questions? Come on, we've got to get some questions. Come on. Come on. Where's your videos on the Israel situation, sir? Very, very demanding. Uh, yeah, very far Go back and watch the uh, first 30 minutes of this podcast yeah. when it's up on YouTube. So, yeah, guys on TikTok, we, we do this podcast at um, 7.15. Um, what's the time? Greenwich Mean Time, that's the one. Um, and so the first topic we... Oh, here we go. Do you think there will be a viable political solution between Israel and Palestine? I mean, we've already discussed it in this episode. Um, if you're on TikTok, um, you can also head on over to YouTube and open up um, the live on my channel there where you can see Andrew and Clay from Global Guessing as well. So, um, yeah, make sure to if to do that. I think I might have to take my headphones out, actually, so people can hear you. So I'll pop those out quickly so they can hear oh, you. Oh, for TikTok. Yeah, yeah it might, the sound might go a bit funny on the YouTube from now on, so I'll pop them off. Um, yeah, so what what do we got? What was our someone give us a recap of our um, Israel Palestine? Do you think there'll be a solution? Should be on speaker now. Very tough question to start us off with. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about a, a good way of recapping. I mean, I think it went a bit all over the place. Um, I mean, I think some of the big points I think were that uh, you know we're not totally sure when the violence going to stop. Um, you know, I think we're talking a lot about Palestine's geopolitical situation um, like within the region and, you know, who their allies are, how the situation has changed since, you know, 2017, since 2014, and how that might affect the outcome of the of the violence going on there. Um, I think we've said that a lot of, you know, international players like China, Russia, the U.S. Um, are all going to be very much relevant into, uh, uh, you know, how, how the violence like progresses and if there's a diplomatic end in sight um but yeah i think we all are hoping for some sort of diplomatic solution yeah i don't want to speak for you guys though well i i personally thought there wasn't going to be a solution necessarily there's not a really there's not really a box of solutions that you can pick one out of at the moment it's going to be um it's going to be pretty complex um and some yeah I think that's my answer. I don't know about you, Clay. What, what, I can't even remember what we said now, to be honest with you. But. I, I think it's definitely possible, just yeah. given all the normalizations of Israel. Like, this could be, like, Palestine's, like, current, like, best chance of getting the best outcome um, for a deal right now. And so that, you know, this, this, this could be... Um, it could be that. Uh, most likely... Uh, the fighting will continue until it sort of simmers out, and then it'll go back to how how it's been for the past, you know, decades. But you know, I I don't think we can also discount the the chance that it's possible. But just given the forces that are behind this most uptick in violence, the the social media effect on radicalization and increased polarization in Israel and all of those other factors, probably not. Say ten, fifteen percent. Ten. Oh, what was the other? I just saw another question as well. Yeah, 
Who wins five grid grizzly bears or 50 men with machetes? 10 <laughs> seconds to answer that one. Oh, 50 men with machetes. A hunt. 50 men versus what, five bears? <laughs> grizzly bears? I don't know. I might be on team bear. No, you're stupid if you're on team bear. <laughs> I actually I just have to 50 people? Yeah, I'm, I think I might go with the men with the machetes, I reckon. I'd probably take three to one, you know, like if it was five bears, 15 people, I think there'll be a human standing at the end. Even if they're not trained in the arts of machete wielding, just 50 random guys with knives. It's a blade, you know? I, I, it just reminds me of um, The Revenant, that film. Have you ever That's watched that one? Where he fights the bear. Yeah, I mean, think about this, right? Like, how many 10-year-olds with machetes could you beat up? And I think that's probably a fair analog. And I'm going to go with not a lot. Yeah. Not a ton. We'll, we'll leave that one. Um, <laughs> why was there no This Week in Geopolitics? Sorry, I was just going to say, there's, there was no This Week in Geopolitics um, episode last week because I was just having a week off. I was quite tired. I, was kind of, I just needed to have a bit of a break. Um, so there will be one coming out tomorrow. It's just a day later than it normally is. So that, I'll write that and get it out to you tomorrow. But yeah, you guys can all, every week every week this podcast comes out. Uh, it's a new podcast. I'm probably going to try and advertise it on the TikTok as well. Maybe make a YouTube video about it just so people are more aware. Um, so yeah, sorry Andrew. We'll get we'll get back to the questions. Um, no worries. Yeah, a question on YouTube. Oh yeah, no, take it, take it. A uh, question on YouTube asking about troops at the Ukrainian border. I know as of five days ago, maybe a week ago, uh, the Ukrainian defense minister, some something along those titles, was saying that Russia still has 100,000 troops at or near the border. Um, I don't know how that's changed since then. Um, the Russian withdrawal date was supposed to be like May 8th, I believe, uh, when they initially announced the troop withdrawal. So Russia did not... According to Ukraine, Russia not keeping their word. Shocking. Um, I don't know. What do you guys make of it? I was unable to find any sort of reports since that you know week old report uh, that on the Ukrainian side saying there were still 100,000 troops. I don't know if Russia said anything or if there's been any more recent estimates. Um, but I do think it is important that you know there's still that many troops over at uh, the Ukrainian border, if that's true. I saw one on Al Jazeera saying that they... Th- the Ukrainians were saying there's still 100,000 there, I think. Uh, yeah, Al Jazeera. When was that from? Uh, 11th of May. Okay, so it's five days ago. Yeah. Uh, I'll try and uh, get it up on the screen. That's it. Ukraine. I guess you can leave all of your artillery at the border and not have some people to look after it, maintain it. Um, but it does still, still seem like a lot of, a lot of troops, so... Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the play is there, why they're doing that. Uh, maybe just to maintain stability. Or keep pressure um, on the potential Biden-Putin summit um, and do it while Russia's still in a, a posture of aggression. And so if that be the overarching theme versus withdrawing now and then having a summit in July when, you know, if there's only 10,000 troops at the border, that kind of sets the framing on it differently. And if as we were saying, you know, Putin was doing this to, in some ways, remind the the West that he's there and he's not just going to be ignored, or if he is going to be ignored, he's going to then do things like this. Um, 
so yeah, uh, um, if, if that's the assumption, then this is sort of Putin keeping on that pressure. Yeah, I'd agree with that, hundred percent. I don't think there's much to much more to that story. I think it is purely just a, a political leverage point, pressure point. Uh, he'll keep the troops there as long as he needs them there. Yeah, they're not going to pour over the border, in my view. It's just to, it's just sort of an insurance thing, I think. If Ukraine, perhaps, mm-hmm. because the Ukrainians are looking at, from what I've read, they're looking at buying Turkish drones. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago or a week ago, that the the Turkish drones were quite instrumental in um, the Armenian-Azerbaijan 2020 conflict. Um, yeah. I think they could play come to play a role in Ukraine as well. I'm going to do. I want to do a video on that actually, solely on the use of of, of how drones might. Be, uh, the Ukrainians might acquire Turkish drones and use them to perhaps try and take back the, the eastern separatist areas. I think I think that might be what what is coming or what Putin is afraid of potentially in in Ukraine. That's just my view. I'm, I'm not sure if it's correct, but that's that's kind of what I've been reading. So I think we have a few questions on. Israel-Palestine about the potential of a two-state solution. Um, there's a few on TikTok about the possibility of Israel getting overwhelmed by Palestinian rockets. That's a good Obviously, question. Very low. <laughs> Not going to happen. Um, X to doubt. <laughs> the thing is, though, yeah. that, that I think each I think they've Israel spent 120 million just on the Iron Dome rockets at the moment, um, and the whole point is. I think the the not, I want to say the Palestinian militants or whoever it is sending over rockets will send over ten rockets and seven of them might have no payload in them. They're just purely there yes. to to cost the Israelis money on the Iron Dome. It costs a fortune for each one of the missiles. So I was trying to get the source. I, uh, I think it's also and also Palestinian rockets are much um, better. I think before like the dome was. 95% accurate, and now it's like 80% accurate, which is a huge increase in the amount of rockets that'll get through, which is believed that it's Iranian uh, missile technology, I think. Yeah. But also Israel, especially on Tel Aviv, has really great missile defense sponsored by, bought by the U.S., so I think, um, at least in some of the bigger, bigger targets, I think they feel somewhat protected from Palestinian aggression. This is my Patreon Discord, but here's what I put out earlier. It says... Um, forty thousand dollars per Iron Dome missile. Hundred and twenty million costs so far. Um, so, the more missiles they fire over, the the more um, it's going to cost. Basically, for I wonder how much damage in one missile normally does. It's probably worth it. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, well worth. It. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't have built it. <laughs> well, it's still a net loss wherever you, whichever way you put it, whether it's externalized. Um, if they just let the missiles fall, or whether it's the Israeli government having to pay forty grand for a for a Iron Dome missile, so another, another question. Sick name. Sorry, I was just saying it's it's just a great name, Iron Dome. Yeah, no, I agree with that. <laughs> um, so another another person said, um, "Can you elaborate not on which is right versus which is wrong?" We haven't. I don't think we've actually touched on that, have we? We've been quite. Uh, well, someone's obviously going to disagree, but we've been fairly um, impartial. Yeah, yeah. Um, impartial is a good word. They said, "Can you touch on the global security risks?" Yeah, we've already we've already discussed it in the podcast. 
um, that we did every, as I say, every week at week at Sunday at seven fifteen Greenwich Mean Time. Got my words out there, but yeah, we can we perhaps go back to that for them. Just give a quick little recap on the wider geopolitical implications of the conflict. I think we talked yeah. about Turkey as well and the shield. We've force. talked about some of the um, you know like partnerships like with other countries in the region but i think one thing that we didn't touch on which is probably relevant to this conflict also is just like the the immigration related uh, like ramifications of the conflict um and know where the immigrants are going to go and how that's going to impact some of the neighboring countries that will likely you know take in those 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 migrants and how that will affect their own sort of domestic political situations um i think that is always you know, a big concern, humanitarian concern, whenever you have a crisis of this magnitude. Um, so it would definitely be interesting to see, you know, other countries in Levant, how they're, um, how they're receiving a lot of this, you know, violence, especially because, you know, what's going on in Syria is still going on. Like, there's still a lot of other issues in the region. Um, so the confluence of these could be uh, a bit problematic from that standpoint as well. Anything you'd like, Clay? No, I think that's good. Yeah. Watch the full episode. Yeah, well, go, get watch, the, get the full take. go watch the full episode on YouTube. Honestly, it's, we, we've gone pretty, as in-depth as we can as sort of non-experts. Yeah, we've been streaming for 108 minutes, so we've gone pretty in-depth. Yeah. We're on three yeah, topics. we're on an hour and nearly two hours now for this podcast, so. But Speaking yeah. of um, a question that I'm, I'm making my own question. Go for it. Uh, inspired by the poster behind you, Ross. Oh, um yeah. What do we all take about the uh, the increasing news about UFOs and what that means geopolitically? There was more footage released this this week. Um, Army or some branch of the U.S. government released a, a Pentagon. Uh, unid- oh, okay, Pentagon released an unidentified flying object that seemingly was defying gravity, then just went into the water and disappeared. Um, Is that the thumbtack they- or the the tic tac? Um, yeah, I mean, they've been releasing more and more of these. There's going to be a report coming up soon. Uh, just curious what, first of all, like, what do you make of the, what's coming out? And what do you think the geopolitical implications of not alien life, but just UFOs in particular would be? Andrew? <laughs> I, can, I can go on for ages, so I'll let Andrew go first. No, I mean, we've talked a bit about, you know, the geopolitics around, um, you know, a lot of these really unexplored territories, uh, you know, one being a lot of stuff with like the EEZ and like the ocean and then going on to the Arctic and then even like the space race and geopolitics of, you know, traveling to the moon and stuff like that. My guess is, you know, as alien life, UFOs become gradually more substantiated, um, you know, a lot of the... Uh, urgency around building bases on the moon, getting to Mars, doing these things, it's, just, it's going to come more to the fore. Um, I think we might even see, you know, potentially less collaboration between countries as that, you know, each country wants to potentially leverage their their own clout in those in those spheres a bit more. Um, I could also see a world where there's more collaboration, we're all working together, and we see this as a, you know, realistic possibility, you know, um, to make contact or something in our lifetime and so you know that becomes a priority as opposed to you know china building a base on the dark side of the moon or some part of the moon before another country that sort of thing what, what um, do you think of um so i, I read I, I obviously I'll, I, 
you say about the poster like the x-files it's probably my favorite tv program i'm fairly interested in ufos but some some people have sort of speculated that maybe some adversary they say it was a u.s source i think they said maybe an adversary of the u.s has technologically advanced secretly to such an extent that they have that technology now i mean it would it seems fairly unlikely to me but what do you make of that notion i i would say it's probably not true just given that what we're seeing from these ufos right if if the behavior we're seeing the aircraft exhibit is actually happening like it defies our conceptions of uh, of, of gravity and of physics um there was a really interesting post uh twitter thread by eric weinstein uh podcaster and i believe he's a physicist by trade i'm not entirely sure um but he was talking about how like uh sort of physics in general sort of fell into like an equilibrium with with quantum and the einstein stuff in like the 60s and 70s and there's sort of been a really sort of stable understanding of physics uh, whereas before there used to be like really experimental thinking about what could be possible um and that like if these aircraft are true that it would indicate that like how we understand physics is just wrong and yeah. we have to go back to the drawing table which is you know in some ways it depends how you view it right if it's glass half empty it's like this is totally wrecks our our belief on the other mm -hmm. hand it means that we don't know everything and there's this huge you know whole new realm of of, of scientific thought that we haven't even discovered yet and that we could discover in our lifetime which i think could be really exciting ties, um, ties back to the x-files you got uh, i don't know if you've watched it before but you have a bit the um, first you, season. you have Mulder, who is sort of more open to ideas that aren't entrenched in empirical science and then you have scully who's like um she's very scientific minded evidence-based and then the whole show is sort of a microcosm of of that sort of scientific debate of whether you're open to um extreme possibilities or extraterrestrial life or whether you're uh more empirically minded and um, like to base things on evidence i think and the, and the, I, I think i'm more of a molder in that respect i like to keep i think we don't i think we don't understand i think our scientific understanding is sort of like getting a torch and shining it in a dark room we can't see everything we can have a we can have a pretty good idea of what's in there but we can't know every single detail about it um that's do you come I'm, up with that metaphor that's poetic i like that well the the dark room yeah no, yeah yeah well, i came up with that yeah <laughs> copyright <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah i think i think that's the way i view things like it's we don't know everything us oh we've how long have we had science for in its current form 100 years 100 years or slightly more the scientific method the scientific revolution was like uh 14 15 1600s that was like yeah. the age of reason and the age of science scientific yeah. re revolution so i mean a few hundred years but in terms of like our, our knowledge of physics that's about like 50. Yeah, I think that's and, the, and the whole quantum revolution was like 40 years ago which is really like monopolized thought um yeah someone's yeah, yeah i think like, sorry go ahead no i'm just gonna agree with you i think it's part of what it is to be human is to think you know things and realize you don't you know that's sort of what, what exactly. we've been doing since since we started so i'm sure we're in for some very interesting surprises over the next like 10 20 50 years when it comes to alien life now what if they actually are a little green people 
Well, then whoever first <laughs> drew that picture <laughs> in, like, the 20s of Aliens is spot on. Good for you. I think, I think this was in an op-ed in the New York Times by, uh, what's his name, the Vox guy? really liberal uh Ezra Klein he had a he did a column about aliens and one thing that he said that if it if these UFOs come out to be real evidence and uh, there's a real chance of alien life that even if there wasn't evidence in the past for it and the evidence is just super new like all the conspiracies going back I think would just wreck he, he posits would just wreck trust in governments when they're already at a low um, which I think could have talking about you know de-dollarization, rise of crypto, rise of you know the in, uh, Ross tying back to your future of statehood video, the, these idea um, of vertical states, like all of that could probably be on the rise if you know if these UFOs are real and they've known about them and they just were lying to us because they thought we were babies for years. I don't think that's going to go over well yeah. with people, especially right now when, like, all of that's such a hot issue already. you got to watch the X-Files, man. you got to watch it. It gets so deep into all that stuff. Um, they they yeah. do talk about the, the fear of, like, if, if we have disclosure, how people will react, and especially, in a, I'm thinking in terms of religion, like, how would certain religions react to it? Yeah, no, I think um, aliens are just one thing, you know, that the government has not been totally forthcoming about. Um, and as you said, for good reason, in some cases, you have to worry about the public good and, you know, how they're going to respond. And you know, we talked about that with the case of the colonial pipeline, you know, and how much you're disclosing to people and when because you're concerned about response. Um, What's the public good for not telling people about UFOs, especially if they're like drones and so like, the alien life is conceivably like millions of light years away. Like, do they think like? I think it, it just seems like governments think that like the populace is such fragile minds that like everyone would like break down and not be able to function because we've confirmed alien life. Toilet paper. And I. What yeah, but toilet paper. They were like, but toilet paper. They weren't being like, if they were just up front being like, hey, like toilet paper having a blip in supply, it'll be fine and. You know, a certain period of time will have a surge price. I feel like that would have been fine. It's, I think that implies that people are rational, are fundamentally rational, and uh, I don't want to. I think they're more rational if you treat them as if they're rational, rather yeah. than if you treat someone as if they're irrational. They're probably more likely to be irrational. I think it comes down to power, though. Like, mm. I think it comes down to power, though. Like, how are you as a government going to disclose, you know, information that you don't have answers to? And then people are going to be asking for answers, of course, when they see these things flying around. These things are actually aliens. You know, need just as much as uh, as Joe on the street who saw the video on YouTube. I feel like that jeopardizes the not of information that the government has. Oh, or if they're reverse engineering the technology. That's a good, yeah. I think what you said about the power that governments have it has implications for that, definitely. Any more questions? I think we probably won nearly two hours now, aren't we? So oh, man. <clears throat> yeah, we can do maybe one or two more. Yeah, two more questions. Two more, and then uh, make sure to subscribe to Global Guessing and follow us on yeah. Twitter at Global Guessing. There we go. I'll say we'll let you plug your stuff on the on the way so out definitely. <laughs> Haven't someone said maybe governments are hiding the evidence of aliens is a good idea because they might maybe they found very dangerous information. Yeah, so if they did, like, 
at some point then like that bad information would then come true and then we'd just be sprung on it and it would be even worse which there's been contact already you don't even know maybe it's hard to deal with some of these things and that's part of the part of what's going to end up coming out my personal view is that it might sound a bit i don't know if this will turn people off me or my channel but i think we've had contact with aliens and perhaps even multiple um alien species or races or whatever you want to call them um I think I think there's probably I don't know whether that's them coming here or we've had some sort of wow signal where they've sent a message I don't know I think I think as I say our understanding of, of physics is and science is is so little compared to say a civilization that's a billion years old they, they they've probably found a way to bend the laws of physics and they could probably come here and and it, it ties back to the whole thing of whether they could be bothered with us Really, they might just fly mm -hmm. past and just be like, "Look at these idiots! What are they doing?" We We're just to like keep track, right? Like we send probes yeah. to planets to look at like, you know, ice sheets on Europa. This could be like their equivalent. Oh, let's see what the little humans are doing on their on their tiny little planet. You know, and maybe they're among us. Like, there's so many <laughs> don't know. You know, like, are the lizard people real? Maybe our conception of aliens is so much dictated by what we already have an understanding of so it's tough to think outside of that box what's know? to say that aliens are like us anyway why would they have to have a body what happens if they're i don't know like a yeah. cloud of gas or something or are they even conscious or There's some aerobic yeah thing okay. some questions say that for the uh for the alien forecast uh on simon's question why the change from ufo to uap uh, an initial thought on that is um, then they can say, you know, we're not confirming UFOs, we're confirming UAPs. And it's some like <laughs> uh, like workaround, like, oh, UFOs, those were never real, but these UAPs are, and kind of creating like a new name to maybe the, the, first hide the, time, fact that... the first time I ever heard UAP was Hillary Clinton talking about it during the 2016 oh. presidential election. I'd never heard it before that. I think she was on one of those talk shows, I don't really watch them in the US, and she was talking about it with someone, and she said, oh, we refer to them as UA unexplained aerial phenomenon now, rather than UFOs or something. So maybe they know something... It's even more ambiguous. Yeah. Well, maybe they know that it's not necessarily conscious life. It might just be some sort of weird phenomenon that we don't actually... Don't, maybe it's time travelers from the future or something. I don't know. But they just changed it to unidentified aerospace phenomenon versus flying object. Is that just then saying like it's not an object there? Yeah. And could it be like hologram ships? Because otherwise, like it's light being. It just seems. It just seems like pure semantics, and it's. It's just not going to catch on. No one. It's 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 going to be like Latinx. Or maybe try it out, and it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be taken away. Okay. Anyway, maybe it's like, um, maybe it's like you know, it's not flying. It's like the like the means of like moving around. They wouldn't classify it as flying. It's some other thing because you know, they've talked about these, you know, objects moving at eleven thousand miles per hour and then changing direction in a split second. Whereas it would take you know a U.S. you know fighter jet. I think somebody said like half the state of Ohio to make a turn like that. Like just crazy stuff. Like, right. I think yeah, maybe it's like not flying, quote unquote. I don't know. Let's do one more. Yeah, let's do one more. There's a couple on there. I don't know if you want to choose. I'll let you guys choose. There's some on TikTok. 
Yeah, someone said how to global security. I don't security. know the TikTok uh, crowd. Uh, someone said, would you talk about the coming inflation? We've already talked about that, haven't we? Yeah. Um, it's it. We're, we kind of fall in between right now, like the two extremes. Like, it's definitely not like the, it's nothing at all to worry about that we're kind of getting from the Biden admin. Um, but we're also not you know, absolutely terrified of inflation. It's definitely a threat and something that has to be like actively managed and not brushed aside. And I think uh, this is just my view that Biden has to be at least careful about inflation when it comes to, you know, spending potentially additional $4 trillion right now on top of the 4 trillion US government budget and the 2 trillion of COVID relief, you know, slapping another 4 trillion, even if it's over 10 years, that's another 400 billion um, a year, um, and so what's that for John you're talking about? Sorry. That would be the family plan and the infrastructure, uh, bill? infrastructure bill. Yeah. Yeah. More um, money. More, right, guys. more magic yeah. money. Yeah. I think I think um, might have to end it there. I need to sort of go now. So yeah. Yeah, of course. You guys talk about your channel quickly and your website, and then yes. Um, you guys should check out Global Guessing uh, on Twitter. We are at Global Guessing. Uh, YouTube, you can type in Global Guessing and find us. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn under Global Guessing. Um, what we do at Global Guessing is we forecast geopolitics and talk about the science of forecasting. Uh, every Monday, we forecast geopolitical events on our series, Metaculous Monday. And then we have two podcasts, the Global Guessing Weekly podcast, which is weekly. Uh, where we talk about geopolitics and forecasting with um, professors, experts in the field. Um, and then we have the right side of maybe where we bring on expert forecasters to talk about um, forecasts that they got much more right than everyone else uh, and talk about how they how they did that. So you can find us at globalguessing.com and on all social media platforms at Global Guessing. We'd love it if you guys subscribe to us on YouTube. We're trying to hit 100 subscribers so we can claim um, our YouTube URL. Cool. Make sure you guys get over there and subscribe. Anything? At, you're sorry, you're going to say something, Andrew? No, I just said perfect. That's cool. Great plug, Clay. Cool. And uh, make sure to uh, tune in to the AR Global Security YouTube channel for tomorrow for uh, the This Week in Geopolitics video that'll be coming out. And um, doing my job for me there. I love it. I could, could do <laughs> something for that. And uh, this was episode three of the This Week in Geopolitics podcast. Uh, another great one guys yeah enjoy this one uh, well, yeah. I enjoyed all of them but yeah this one more so so see you later boys and girls bye bye see ya awesome bye